Best episode yet. And okay, I get that that means nothing because we've only had three episodes here at Pat's Interference, but I'm Andrew Callahan for the Boston Herald. And I got to tell you, Ted Johnson, former Patriots linebacker, 1995 to 2005, now working at 98.5 The Sports Hub and NBC Sports Boston, absolutely crushed this. We did a little bit of draft talk at the beginning, kind of a wish list, not a player position. What do you want to see the Patriots do this upcoming weekend? Then we got into how Ted would have schemed for and prepared for Mac Jones last season if he was on an opposing defense. And finally, I got to tell you the best part, his old Bill Belichick stories, stories about getting drafted in 95, the pick after a punter and eight to 10 Miller lights thrown in there. Plus the guy is, is somehow immune to speeding tickets. All that and more with Ted Johnson. Please, if you like what you hear, again, I said this last week, we're only going to get better. So just take two seconds, four taps and do me a favor. Rate and review on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us elevate our platform. Quick taps, I'd absolutely love it. We'd really appreciate it. And again, you're going to love what Ted has to say here. First, Bet Online AG. Look, if you thought the Celtics were going to roll as they have been so far against the Nets, you could have made some money, and you should have done it at Bet Online because our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs. Find all the latest developments, including updated odds in the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, which are coming up, fights, and even full season futures. Bet Online is your continued source for everything sports betting, including live wagering in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started. And again, here's the best part about Bet Online join now and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Now, Ted Johnson. Here he is, Ted Johnson, former Patriots linebacker, late 90s, early 2000s. You can listen to him on 98.5 The Sports Hub. Watch him on NBC Sports Boss. I know you had, I think it was called The Game Plan, right, with Phil, the, the TV show you were doing during the season? It was actually, um, it, was, uh, it was called The Breakdown. Yep, the breakdown. breakdown. Okay, yep. good. Well, this gets into my next point. I would watch that. So I love it, Ted, because I love that kind of X and O insight, the X player who keeps up on his homework. But I would always fear for Phil a little bit because you are as very much built 6'2", 250 as you were in your playing days. And you're you're running through a rip technique with him or something. I go, I should just text him and tell him I love him just in case this is it. <laughs> Dude, we had so much fun kind of go doing, uh, doing those segments where we get kind of, you know, trying – show people kind of what I'm talking about and, and, uh, and, and go through and, and do a, an exercise for people. So I'm glad you enjoy that part of the breakdown. We have fun doing it. I get to get my hands on Phil and he, I can see sweat beads coming down his forehead every time we get ready to do that segment. Excellent. We'll see if he bulks up maybe this off season, you know, we'll see a training camp. If he's like everyone else, best shape of his life, you know, just to get through another season of the breakdown. You better be awesome. Um, all right. So we're running down our Patriots draft wish list is four items. Doesn't have to be a player. Doesn't have to be a position that just we, if we're running the Patriots would want to accomplish most. I say, let's start at four. We'll go to one. And if we have some overlap, which I probably anticipate that we will, um, we'll just, we'll just jump on it right away. So your number four item on your wish list for the Patriots as we go into this draft starting Thursday night at eight. Well, you know, I, I would say the number four has to be probably, um, I think an inside linebacker, you know, that's kind of what I want. And when I say inside linebacker, I'm thinking of a three down linebacker, Andrew. So I'm thinking of a guy that doesn't come off the field, the Patriots over the years, as you've seen, and the trends is now that, you know, when I, when I got drafted in 1995, 
Bill Parcells, uh, who, you know, who's obviously we all know has had a huge influence on, on Bill Belichick, was a big 3-4 guy, a 3-4 base, so it's two linebackers in the inside, two on the outside. That's kind of the, the primary base defense for a Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells-type defenses that I kind of grew up in. They're going more away from that, more to one uh, middle linebacker with a lot of nickel and dime uh, kind of packages. And so this, this, I think this defense historically has always needed middle linebackers that are kind of, you know, guys that just don't come out. So one guy, just give me one inside linebacker, Andrew, that doesn't come off the field, a la Dante Hightower, Gerard Mayo, um, you know, guys that came, you know, me and Brewski that came before that. To me, you need a middle linebacker. If you could get a middle linebacker in this draft, that would be, uh, that would be huge. I like it. Um, I'll tell you, not on my list, which I hear all the points that you're saying. And I think, look, if they went linebacker saying the Kobe Dean falls to 21, right? I think that's a, it's a good safe pick. I think I've just come from the standpoint of looking at so many of those players. We go, Hey, he's, he's really good. He's instinctual. He's physical, but he's, he's two thirty. you know, it's like, it doesn't fit their prototype. So I've kind of gotten that out of my mind. I also look at this, as you mentioned, the nickel, they're playing with box safeties and have pretty much since 2017. Right. And that's their way to adapt of saying, we'll keep the same personnel on the field and change up our looks with having to, you know, shift guys in and out and provide another tell. It's the same group of guys. We can go from different alignments. So the, I'd like the linebacker idea. I just think they're more confident in what they have than we are. Right. They look at camera grown, Juwan Bentley's back. Um, who am I missing? Mac Wilson. Come over McMillan, who knows? You know, he's right. Back. Right. Cause they're only playing five to 10% of base nowadays, but look, it, if I had a four B on this list, that would have made mine. My number four was a, de- a developmental O lineman. I know you talked about this last Saturday or Sunday, excuse me on the show. You know, I've talked about it with Alex Barth in the past, just the idea of they're going to need a tackle at some point. This right. Like Trent Brown and Isaiah Wynn are not staying healthy the whole season. Right. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And so, if you were going to ask me what my number three need was, <laughs> I probably would say O lineman. Um, and to me, you know, the the old the line clearly with Shaq Mason being traded and Teddy Karras uh, being uh, you know sh- shipped away is uh, you know excuse me Teddy Karras going to uh, Cincinnati to sign mm-hmm. as a free agent. Those are two big losses right there. And to me, you know, everybody wants to, and I get this, Andrew. Like you want to you want to give. Mac Jones, a ton of weapons, right? So you want to give, you know, everybody, you look at the arms race going on in the AFC, we want to bolster up our receiving core. Okay, they did that to some degree with Devontae Parker. Look, I'm not as worried about our receiving core, maybe as some people are. So I feel like the Devontae Parker trade kind of settled things down there. However, one way that you can kind of look at uh, maybe helping Mac Jones is by getting him better, you know, better protection and getting him, um, you know, you know, protecting him from the inside out. And so I, I kind of harken back to, Say 2014, when you know the Patriots were 0 2, and it was on to Cincinnati, and, and you know Tom Brady wasn't playing good, and everybody wanted to know what the problem was. Problem was that Tom Brady was getting hit all the time. He was, he, you know, and this whole thing on offense works only when you can protect the quarterback. Okay, that's the number one thing. And so we talk about you know receivers and tight ends and running backs and all the weapons. It really starts with the offensive line. So I am a little bit worried right now, Andrew, about the offensive line, interior offensive line. And so to me, for the number three need, it's, it's got to be interior offensive line. I wouldn't be that upset if with that 21st pick they went guard in this in this draft. I know that doesn't excite people, but I wouldn't have a problem with it. 
Yeah, and then you've got two good candidates, right? Right up the road, Zion Johnson coming out of Boston College, regarded as one of the safest prospects in the whole class. And Kenyon Green out of Texas A&M, who fits the profile of a Patriots O-lineman because he started at four different positions down there in College Station. So, you know, you can kind of take your pick, you know, between the two, or you can wait till the later rounds where they typically nab a guy like you talked about, Shaq Mason. Even Joe Tooney was kind of a middle-round guy that they develop really well. But they don't have a whole lot of time to develop there, where if, you know, I'm speaking more of the offensive tackle side, but you could go guard because you have a starting spot that's wide open. Like you need to plug that. And I think this also speaks to, it's a good point by you in terms of helping Mac Jones. It's not just about, you know, we hear it from Bill all the time, collecting talent, you're building a roster and that roster needs to fit. So Mac Jones is someone who is going to suffer first and foremost from interior pressure, just as Brady did. They're kind of packet, pocket bound, you know, ground bound statue passers. And so you need to have that fortified first and foremost. So it wasn't a need down the stretch last year, but he played worse anyway. And I think if you're going to have a repeat of that, it'll be because of, of leaky protection. So I think you're spot on. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and it's, it's you look at the offensive line. Last year, the offensive line didn't do too bad, Andrew. You know, I mean, they were eighth in rushing uh, throughout the season. They were third in sacks allowed, which was a little bit surprising. And when we get into Mac Jones a little bit later, I'm going to talk kind of just kind of emphasize, you know, the the hitting of the quarterback, if you will, as being such a key part of 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 of, of kind of Mac's success is just keeping him protected. But they, at the end of the day. The way the season started out last year, I mean, it felt like Mac Jones getting hit all the time. But at the end of the day, uh, to to only uh, you know being third ranked in sacks allowed last year was pretty good. They ranked eleventh in teams pass block win rate last year. So the point is, the offensive line last year was one of their strengths, and now you have two guys that are uh, leaving. You know, one in free agency, one via trade. So that's a huge concern for uh, for obvious reasons. Teddy stats. I love it. The ESPN pass block win rate. I was just going to jump in. You got football outsiders adjusted sack rate, pro football focus. They're top 12 and all that. You're absolutely right. But of course you mentioned two starters out the window. That's not a stat you can carry over to next season, especially the way things are ramped up in the AFC. Um, Speaking of helping Mac Jones, number three on my list was just a slot wide receiver. This kid could start right away. He could be another developmental player. You know, people have started to zero in. I think we get the group think right. It's mid to late April. We're all talking about the same kids. Kyle Phillips, UCLA stood out from the moment he entered the draft process really quick. Sub seven, three cone, like guys who can just get open, who are sudden, I think. And when I remember watching training camp last year, he had that word sudden in mind. And there were only two guys in that receiving core that stood out. It was Nelson Aguilar, of course, didn't work out, at least season one. And Gunnar Oshevsky, who's not here anymore. But Gunnar was their pump returner. You know, you need someone in the slot, third and six, here comes a cover zero blitz. You got to get the ball out. And I think that's a guy, Kyle Phillips, or anyone else in that slot that can win over the middle of the field. Dude, look, I'm a huge fan of the slot game. Um, you know, to think back, go back to 1995. You know, the slot game was, it was just starting to get in vogue. And, you know, who, you know, I always want, you know, who's the, kind of one of the first slot receivers that were the quarterback, just like you're describing, like we've seen for years here with Edelman and, and Wes Welker, who was that guy? Think about it, If you can think about back in 1995, uh, a division opponent who, uh, who had a great slot from where, where do you go to school? Hofstra university. Um, his name was Wayne Corbett and Wayne uh, Corbett yes. was to me, one of the best kind of, uh, the Jets used him and slot receiver it kind of to a, to a degree in which I think a lot of teams started seeing how impactful that type of player like a Wayne Corbett can be. And now you've seen it just get better and better over the years. So I'm a huge fan of the slot game. They need that element in their offense. Look, everybody kind of dogs on Jacoby Myers. Maybe he doesn't look physically like the guy that fits that mold. I love Jacoby Myers on his team. I don't care 
I don't care. Whatever it takes to get him, keep him on this team, I think you have to do. I don't think he's that bad in slot, but I hear what you're saying. Slot receiver, a more traditional slot kind of uh, type body, you know, size and, and, uh, and build is probably very much needed for this team. Look, I'm with you as far as Jacoby Myers goes, and it has nothing to do with what he does on the field. This is purely selfish. We go to the locker room. He's a rookie. You know how rookies are under Bill. Keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. No. Anytime we walk in, even after a loss, hey, what's up? How are you? And I'm like, oh, are you, are you, are you talking to someone over my shoulder? Like, he's just yeah. a good, down-to-earth guy. He's not going to break any of their media rules, but he'll talk to you. And it's someone that, for me, like – refreshing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And thank God he took off at the, the back end of that 2019 season. The last time we've been in the locker room because he was in every single story regardless. So sometimes you have to remind someone, Hey, he's inactive for three weeks, but listen to what this guy has to say. That's um, right. That's right. So no, all right. Number two in your list. Number two, it's, it's cornerbacks, you know, and, and I'll throw some more stats at you, you know, look at the end of the day. So here's, here's what we're trying to figure out, right? And we're trying to figure out what, what maybe philosophically the Patriots are going to do. Look, you have, uh, you know, the last two years, the Patriots had, arguably two of the top 10 cornerbacks in the NFL walk out the door. You know, one was traded, of course, um, with, with Stephon Gilmore two years ago to the uh, Carolina Panthers for a six-round draft pick. And then, of course, J.C. Jackson walked this year in free agency. Those were two excellent, 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 uh, you know, cornerbacks. And the Patriots were okay with letting them go. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of a head scratch and you kind of wonder, well, what are they thinking? So the the – the thought process is for a lot of us, and I, and I thought maybe this early on, is just that they're going to maybe play more zone, all right? So man-to-man yeah. -man is maybe going to be de-emphasized to some degree. Um, and so with that in mind, um, you maybe the, the cornerback position isn't as big of a need, but here, let's, let's face it, at the end of the day, you still got to be a very good man-to-man -man team to survive in this league. And so to me, the cornerback position is A, number one, that they need to go out and, and get. And here's the interesting thing. Will they go get a cornerback high? I don't know. Because I look at cornerbacks, Andrew, kind of like how I'm looking at wide receivers right now. The elite corners is almost as if, you know, they're going to get – if you draft them high, that second contract, more times than not, it's going to be another big deal. The Patriots probably don't want to pay. And right. so I think a lot of times the, the Patriots kind of look at receivers and cornerbacks as if, you know what, if we can get them in the middle rounds – and then develop them, bring them along slowly so that when their second contract is up, they're not going to be demanding the big dollars. I know it sounds crazy, but <laughs> I think that's how the Patriots think about that position. So that's, that's one thing there. But, you know, clearly they need help at cornerbacks. You saw with the team in the, the best team in the division, the Buffalo Bills did to them the last two games. I mean, it was, they were flawless. And so, and you need to have a cornerback. So I, you know, I was, uh, I was raised in the Simpsons where Ty Law, I had great, I you know, always had great cornerback in Ty Law. My whole career, the number one guy who who could play the, on their on their best receivers week in week out. That allows you to do so much more on defense. And so I think this team, who's got to generate, I think pass rush because although Matthew Judon had a good season last year, you saw him uh, kind of, you know, not uh, he, he ran out of gas there at the end of the season. They need more pass rush, and a lot of times they have to manufacture it by blitzing. So if you're going to blitz because you can't get pass rush with just four guys, then you better have better man-to-man -man guys on the back end. And I think ultimately that's what the Patriots want to do. So to me, this is a big need. I know the Patriots have gotten away with having lesser cornerbacks in the past and still done well. But in today's NFL with the arms races and all the wide receivers that are in the AFC East, I just think this is a, this is a, this is a huge need for them. So this is my number two uh, need for in this year's draft. 
Yeah, you hit on a lot there. And I'll work backwards from the scheme stuff where you mentioned I'm with you. And we saw this change, honestly, midseason last year where they pivot to a little bit more zone. They just didn't have, you know, when Jalen Mills is going to stick at outside corner opposite J.C. Jackson for the rest of the season because they trade Stephon Gilmore to Carolina. He's not a man player necessarily like Jalen Mills even moved to safety his last year in Philadelphia. He's fine. And they might even have him as number two corner for the next couple of years, but they changed schematically and it worked. Their defense still held up until the end part of last season. Of course, that's tied to the pass rush, which you mentioned. So I think inevitably they want to do a blend. And some people, when you hear zone, right, they're like, we don't want to play this soft zone. That'll get carved up. Cause what did Brady do for 20 years? He carved up cover two, cover three, any variations of those cover six. And so the thing is, Zone can be more than just spot drop. And you know this, you're matching routes, you're passing guys off, you're reading how they break downfield. And so there's kind of like a matchup zone element like in, in, in basketball. But and I think that's where they would pivot if they can. It's just tough to see how they're going to run anything, though, without those corners, because you look at the way they've defended and Belichick specifically top quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, and Josh Allen have all seen man coverage rates above 70% in all the recent matchups against Patriots. And they started to mix in some more zone against Josh Allen. It just didn't work. So, so I'll jump ahead to my number one because that was a starting corner. Some guy, day one, if I'm at that draft board, you know, Trent McDuffie might not be a multi-time pro bowler, but this kid out of Washington, I think you plug and play the zone I'm talking about and some of the man stuff, maybe even a little bit inside in the slot. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. So to, to me, the, and you need a bell cow back there, a guy, I'm trying to see, I'm thinking of like down the road, who are the future kind of core guys at the, in the secondary positions right now? And they lack that big time. So get guys in that, you know, they, they get them in the hopper and get them, uh, and you, you know, uh, kind of accustomed to what the, the systems are so that, you know, when these other guys leave that they're, they have uh, their back filled with, uh, with new talent that has, you know, guys that are, are going to take leadership on his team. So they, they need a cornerback in this year's draft. Yeah, and I think you hit on that too. And you look at receivers, you can make the same argument, right? Nelson Aguilar and Jacoby Myers are in the final years of their contracts. You know, Devontae Parker's a free agent 2023, as is Kendrick Bourne. And how many times have we seen the Patriots make a pick and go, what was that? And then you look at the contract structure, whether it's you know, Nate Solder coming in when Matt Light was still here, Isaiah Wynn even still, they acquired Trent Brown. They're, they're, the draft is not for building right now as much as next year and the year after that. Because you're not going to have a lot of rookies, say for last season, come in, especially in New England, and just make an impact right away. You know, they've got to earn so, that trust. It's so true. And, and I, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a great segue, what you just said, Andrew, into what my number one kind of need is or goal is. And I was just thinking about this is, Get more draft picks. Acquire more draft picks. So my number, so the Patriots right now, and that's what a lot of people think they're going to do with the 21st pick. They're going to trade back. It, it, it's weird to say, but I would say this year, uh, more than any other year, I'd have no problem with them trading back. So I want them to accumulate more draft picks for the future because of what you just said, Andrew. I'm a little surprised. So my rookie year, 1995, um, you know, Ty Law was our first rounder. I was a second rounder. Curtis Martin was our third rounder. Dave Wallabo was a center from Syracuse. He was our fourth round draft pick. The point that I want to make is that all four of us that were drafted in the first four rounds all started as rookies. Like I'm just used to draft picks, higher draft picks playing right away. I don't know what's going on with Bill. He has a a reluctance or a hesitancy to play the rookies um, early on. And so that feels like that's just kind of like a, a thing that Bill over the years has kind of said, you know, he doesn't just draft guys and expect them to come in and play if they can. Great. But he doesn't expect that. I mean, so with that mentality in this year's draft, accumulate more draft picks if you can, because everybody's saying that it's really, you can get good value in the second and third round. So why not accumulate more draft picks and try and get, uh, more, you know, 
uh, I would say just more players in the second and third rounds if you can by trading back with that first pick. Yeah, and this is the perfect draft for it, right? You know, like everyone's talking about the depth is 15 to 60, maybe 20 to 75, and you want to have multiple picks in that area. Though on the point about rookies playing, over the last five years, except for last year's draft, I think the answer is why they're not playing is because they haven't been very good. The Patriots had one of the worst draft stretches, 16 to 19. Before that, though, when they were drafting well, it was rare you would see guys start, except for maybe the day one or day two guys. And I think it was just because they had good rosters. So no knock on the 95 team, but you guys went 6 and 10 that first season, right? We, we did. Now, the next season, you made the Super Bowl. And that speaks to the developmental point as we're not building just for this season. You're looking ahead to next year where I've talked about this when everyone's freaking out about free agency. And I think fairly so. But the Patriots rank in the top five to seven teams, I think it is right now, in 2023 cap space. Mac Jones is still in that rookie contract. You have more players under contract than most teams in the league next year. They're saving their financial flexibility for next season, when I think they want to make a real push. So you're right. Maybe take those draft picks, start them this season. You're not kind of admitting you're not going to compete. But when you just look at the landscape of the league, look, I don't think either of us are picking them to win the division. And I think they're probably fighting for, for a wild card spot. I agree. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And so you're right. It, it's, it's, uh, look, look, it, as much as we all want to look at the draft and when they draft them go, okay, boom, plug and play. It just, it, that isn't, uh, that isn't the case. And so, um, it, for whatever reason, it's funny you say they're just not that good. That that's, that's the hard part is, is always trying to figure out like, is it, they're not that good or what is Bill, is he, what is Bill thinking when he doesn't play these young guys? And it might just be as simple as they're, they're not as good as maybe we, we thought. And that's always kind of a surprise to me because, the Patriots have been missing more than they've been hitting on draft picks. I'm just not used to seeing that. And so that at the end of the day might be the simplest answer, Andrew. They're just, yeah, or it's, or it's fit. You know, we don't have to lay this all at Bill's feet, right. Or the kids feet, you know, they're coming in, they're working hard. It's just, we didn't know about X, Y, or Z or you got here and Cyrus Jones. Look, that was a kid in 2016 corner punt returner fit the right system coming from Alabama and just completely flamed out, like just absolute disaster. And but aren't you surprised? Like, like so, exactly. But taking Joan Williams, like I don't know, I don't know what you thought. But I look at his film, and I look at, I look at when he when he was in in uh, Vanderbilt, you know. So he's going into what his third year or fourth year? Fourth uh, year. Yeah, and so he, look, I, I thought, you know what I thought when they drafted him, man. First say, oh, he'll be on, he'll be on uh, Travis Kelsey first year, rookie year, and he hasn't, and it just hasn't worked out. It's just, I think it's surprising to me to see just the Patriots in the last four or five years. And, and then Kraft even kind of alluded to this in the, when he gets comments from the owners meeting that, you know, they, they had to spend in free agency last year because they missed on so much draft. I'm just not used to the Patriots missing so much in the draft like they have in the mm-hmm. last few years. That's the, that's kind of the surprising thing. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the, the league as a whole, right? The draft is a crapshoot. We can go down to the science. We can all put on our draft expert hats for two you know, months and get into the three cones and just your explosion and the GPS tracking data and all this different stuff. But the answer is always, all right, we'll see. You know, once they get in the building, we'll we'll just have to wait till they play football, um, which could spark a larger discussion. But I'll just go back. My number two, I was with you at at, at trade back. But since you already hit on that, I'll switch just to defensive tackle. And this touches on, you know, why you had linebacker early and I I kept it off my list. I think if they do a better job of protecting those guys in the middle, you'll get better production of Juwan Bentley, who's willing to come down and, you know, you know, pop helmets with with a guard who's pulling around and coming in and does a good job of that. But they were weak up the middle last year. And I think, look, Jordan Davis, a kid from Georgia, 6'6", 341. Here I go putting on my expert hat. He stole my heart in the college football playoff and playing down the stretch. You know, he might go too early. Someone like UConn's Travis Jones I talked about before. A big guy in the middle, two gap, control the middle. It'll help everyone else in the back end. 
It's so funny, you know, it's interesting because when I, in my, the years I was there, I mean, the huge emphasis was on the D-line, right? I mean, look, I mean, I had, you know, Ty, I had Ty Warren, I had Ted Washington, you know, Richard Seymour. I had these big studs. Vince Wilfork later. Yeah. Vince, Vince, my last year. And you're like, you know, why have the Patriots kind of gotten away from these, these stud defensive tackles? And so that's interesting. A lot of people don't have defensive line in their, in their, in their top five needs. And you have them as at number two, but you know what? They were, they've been terrible against the run, Andrew. They were, you know, and so the, I think Bill has de-emphasized the importance of run defense, to, but not to the level in which it's at now. I mean, it's in the, it's in the bottom half of, of run defense. And you go, okay, but it's a passing league now. I get it. But it's, it's about getting more possessions. They're, the, the Patriots defense are on the field too long, not getting their offense opportunities uh, enough because they can't get off the field. Why? Because they can't stop the run. So, um, you know what? In a, a guy like Jordan Davis, clearly a super freak. You have freaks, and then you have super freaks. Yeah. And that's Jordan Davis. So that would be incredible. Um, a lot of people don't think he'll be there at 21, but boy, that would be very tempting um, if he's still on the board to pass up a guy like a Jordan Davis, like you're mentioning. Yeah, his his football character checks out, his work ethic. There are no skeletons in the closet, just, just grab them. Yep. Um, now, that said, I would bet almost anything. It doesn't happen. But the next segment we have here lined up, we list all the things we wish would happen for the Patriots. If you had to bet $100, here you go, Ted Johnson, to place at the casino, the Patriots will do X in the draft. Any round, any player, any position, what are they going to do this weekend? Oh, okay, well, I have two. But you know what? Here's my, my – I got this – you, you mentioned the guy's name already. Um, and I'm just thinking, I can see the Patriots at the end of the day going offensive guard, you know, mm. and you mentioned Zion uh, Johnson from, from BC. Um, it's everything I've read about this kid or heard about this kid is like the perfect kind of Patriots type of player. And, you know, there's, there's kind of been a history of, I don't know, I, there's been some really good offensive linemen that come from BC, really, particularly in centers and interior linemen. I played with Damian Woody, you know, you got Dan Cope in here. Um, you know, so we've gotten local uh, BC products to play offensive line here at a high level. So my feeling at the end of the day is, is if they go uh, interior line guard at that 21 position and everybody's gonna be mad. However, I have no problem with it um, because I just think you need a stud on the interior. And I will say this about the offensive line. I love the offensive line. I think it's the most important unit on a football team as far as setting the kind of tone for your football team you need nasty guys and so zion johnson fits the bill and so he just to me that's an important position or important position group that a lot of people overlook and don't think it's sexy but in this case i think the patriots probably i'm gonna guess if i had to put 100 bucks down that they go offensive line with that 21st pick all right yeah look i I think it's an easy sell after the freak out that is absolutely going to come if it's an offensive lineman in any kind of round one but look we're not playing football in April. We're not playing football according to what the fans say or the media, which I'm very aware of. But I think you go, look, he's a plug and play starter. He's going to be here for four to five years. You don't have to worry about anything off the field. You know, he's a well-rounded guy, played center at the senior bowl, shown at the senior bowl, which is always a big check in the Patriots box when they come to scouting these guys. You know, you're protecting the most important guy of the franchise when you draft John Zion Johnson, make it about Mac Jones. As far as for me, um, I, it, they're going to take a defensive back day one or day two, which, look, it, I'm not going out on a huge ledge here. Day one and day two account for three out of the seven rounds in the draft, but it's just a priority. We talked about it before. You don't have the corners really right now. You don't certainly have the corners next year or the season after that. And Bill has just been loading up, particularly at safety, where Daxon Hill's a guy out of Michigan. 
everyone has brought up. He fits and might follow Devin McCourty's kind of path, starting at corner and moving to safety. Um, he's now the, I'll tell you at this point where you probably felt the same guys get brought up and tied to the Patriots for so long that you're going, okay, well, this can't happen now. You know, it's never, it's never until Mac Jones, the most obvious answer. Let me, hey, Andrew, let me ask you this. Like what I am. Well, let me, let me ask you before I answer my, uh, my own question, your, your, your thoughts on just the safety position in general, do you think it's undervalued? Uh, with the Patriots or maybe just a position that's undervalued in the NFL or how would you think the Patriots value like a versatile safety in this system? I think it's their most prized asset on defense. And you look at their spending dating back to 2017, they're in the top five, the top 10 every single season. And part of that, look, you have a good in-house captain, Devin McCourty. He's going to be expensive the way that the high level he plays, but they see guys like Adrian Phillips. They signed in 2020. They had no cap space. They made room for him. Kyle Duggar gets drafted that same year before Patrick Chung goes, well, I'm going to hang them up. So you would have had four safeties that year in 2020, and they keep investing at that spot. And I think part of it is not only just, you know, the safety now, those guys are the ones wearing the green dots. You know, it's not the middle linebackers like in your day calling the plays because they're setting the front differently from the coverage, and that's all on Devin's plate. So especially where Devin's on the way out, you know, this year or next, um, I think they want to replace that single high guy because Duggar's like a four, five, four, four, five hyper athletic guy, but more in terms of power and explosion, not the sideline to sideline speed. So I think they prize that overall. And I mean, that's, you know, why I mentioned Dax Hill, because they're going to continue to do that in this draft. I'll say this. I'll just agree with everything you just said. I think it's an undervalued position. Love at, to hear it. And <laughs> in, in, as a whole in the NFL, I think the Patriots to me, so here's the end of the day, we're talking corners. If they went and got just a stud free safety, strong safety, I'd have no problem because I think they use safeties uh, in a way that maybe a lot of teams don't. And I think this, you know, strong safeties are becoming kind of the new it position because of all the, um, you know, clearly all the, the nickel and dime teams playing. They need to be all, honestly, not only bad, uh, you know, good cover guys, they need to be really good tackers. And so I just think there's such a huge premium on that position more than we maybe uh, have, have ever thought about it before. Yeah, no question about it. And you can look at this just from a value standpoint, right? Like you're looking at a modern defense. You need a nickelback. You need a strong safety. You need a free safety. And someone who can play in the box. You get a guy like Kyle Duggar and Adrian Phillips. Um, how about all four? You know, like he can get by having 10 snaps of free safety per game. He's going to play in the box primarily. Throw him over the slot when they, you know, split out these kind of tight ends. You know, the F tight ends were a little bit smaller and running out in space. Like, They've got it. And so you save money, you save roster spots by employing these kind of guys, which, you know, Bill has been loading up and I think we'll continue to do, like I mentioned. Um, all right, Mac Jones, really quickly, you mentioned we were going to talk about this. I'm really in, interested to see your perspective. And I know you've talked about him before, as I mentioned, 98.5 and NBC Sports Boston. But look, say you're on a defense preparing for him last December. What would your scouting report have been? And then what are you trying to take away where at that point he was he was playing his best ball? Yeah, you know what? You know what I would do? I would, I would, I would blitz him early in games. I, that's what I'd do. I would get him. You saw, like, so there wasn't a lot of flaws in his game. I mean, I, for for a rookie, there was. He was. I mean, I thought he was. I thought he was brilliant for for a rookie to to kind of absorb everything, all the pressures, and to execute like he did. Um, I thought I thought it was tremendous. However, you what you can do is is Mac Jones. As competitive and as fiery as he is, you can use that against him to some degree. He's an emotional player, Andrew. And you, you had to see there was several times throughout the season last year where you've seen coaches have to come over 
kind of, hey, calm down. You saw Bill Belichick after a game, after a demoralizing loss. I forget which game it was, right? We had to, like, pull Mac Jones into the locker room. because the Saints, he there, yeah. Kind of having a public worst game. Stuff. Right, having yeah. a pity party. And so there's an emotional piece to Mac Jones where if you can get in his head early, I think it really can disrupt. So I would, I would blitz him early. And that's what a lot of teams do. And then you just kind of pull – pull back maybe in the second half because psychologically you've already kind of accomplished what you want. He's, it speeds him up. He's like a cat on a hot tin roof back there. And he starts maybe making decisions uh, that he wouldn't have if he didn't get hit early in the game. And so to me, that's something he's got to work on. It's just not letting those hits early in the, in how the flow of the game is going early affect him later. There's a lot of emotion with him. And if you can kind of get him worked up and off his game, I think that was one kind of way to attack Mac Jones. I love that answer so much, Ted. A, A, because it gets into, I think, things you would have heard and did hear when Bill is starting his Wednesday morning meeting in the team. He's breaking down the team, not just from a, you know, a statistical or a skill standpoint, but psychologically. Where do these coaches come from? What do they want to do? How do they want to win? Because everyone says, look, I want to win on Sundays. But there's a reason certain guys run cover three systems or a West Coast offense. And so then you get into, you know, OK, where does that come from? Sometimes it's part of their personality. And if you can get straight to that core, which is going to emanate and control everything about how he handles himself on third down or why he makes a particular check, you've won. That's it. It's over. And so I think that idea of blitzing late or early to compound him late helps you kind of amplify your leverage in those moments where you need to be at your best and kind of have an advantage. And, and can I just throw in a uh, real quick kind of uh, honorable mention? Yeah. When it comes to attacking Mac, is, is you, you, Mac Jones is a very – so his two superpowers, if you will, because when you look at him, you go, well, he has no superpowers, right? But no, he does. It's his brain and it's his accuracy. Just like Tom Brady's was to say, that's the thing that's carried him. It, it, people go, when did you notice Tom Brady? I'm like, it's a, it was a slow – he didn't really – he didn't just jump out. It was kind of this – the way he would think through the game – and then the accuracy was was always on point. And those are his two greatest skills. And so the next thing I would say is you got to you know the best way to attack him is confusion. You have mm-hmm. to you have to disguise. You have to do show different looks. Um, and if you can confuse him um, along with the exotic you know kind of blitzing early in games, that's what's going to um, I think maybe the best way to attack him is is the disguise. He's already so advanced from a mental standpoint that you have to start disguising and showing different looks already at such a, uh, a young quarterback, you would think, you know, you didn't have to do that, but that's what you have to do to, to be effective against a Mac Jones. Two things on that. Um, Mac Jones was one of the most blitz quarterbacks in the NFL last year, well inside the top 10. So that speaks to exactly what we were talking about. Number two, you mentioned the Saints game again, statistically tape, whatever your measurement, one of his worst games last season and Bill takes him off the field. I remember talking to some Saints reporters who were close with the staff at the time and leading up to that game, they were like, yeah, they're very confident they can confuse him, which look, that's not a crazy thing to say about a rookie quarterback, right? But this is a rookie quarterback who had just won the starting job in New England, beat out Cam Newton, which say what you will about that, but had been billed even before he got to Foxborough as this smart cerebral guy who could diagnose defenses. And of course, what do they do? Force him into, I think it was three interceptions, had one of his worst games. Um, looking ahead to next season, what do you expect from Mac? A big jump, a little leap. Where does he change his game? What do we see? Oh, I expect a, I expect a, a, a big jump. Um, and it's true. Your second year, more times than not. I mean, my second year was one of my best years as a pro. So I, I'm expecting a, a huge jump. I think he's just going to look – I think he's going to look better. I think he's going to look leaner. I think he's going to be 
Um, I, I thought his play action was is actually was a pretty good play action last year. I, I think he's I think he's a really good play action quarterback. I think that'll be a little bit more crisp. I think it'll be a little bit more on, on point. Um, I think you will see um, a little bit more of a team taking shots down the field. A lot of people question his arm strength. I have no problem with his arm strength, Andrew. At least not yet. It's still he's still young, and I just think I think his ball. I think he's such throws such an accurate football, and I, I just don't get the sense that he, like he's going to have a problem under throwing guys. I I think Mac Jones is going to come out guns blazing. I think he's going to have a phenomenal year. Um, but unfortunately, I don't equate that into wins and success for the team. So I think mm-hmm. Mac Jones can have a big jump, but I don't think it's going to be reflected ultimately in the win and the loss column. And so I'm not as bullish on the Patriots this year for different reasons. I just I think Buffalo is just so much better than you. And I just think the AFC has gotten so much better. And I, I even with a big leap from Mac, I'm a little bit concerned about how many games this team can win and if it's a real playoff team right now. Right now, I don't have them uh, in, the, in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, I, uh, we still have a long ways to go. But those are, those are my feelings on, on what maybe the next year brings. Yeah, I, I like how you covered that because it's interesting. You know, when you look at the big leap, right, those are going to be made on small improvements he makes across the board. There's no suddenly he's chucking the ball 50 yards downfield to now he can throw it through the goalposts you know, on one knee. But what you'll see is the kind of different battlegrounds. I think the play action one is important because early on in the last season, he had negative splits between his play action and his straight dropbacks, meaning he was actually worse in a straight dropback, which is not true for basically any other quarterback in the league. Play action is a cheat code. It sucks linebackers like you up, you know, opens that space in the middle of the field. Where's Mac Jones most accurate? Right over the middle of the field. He eventually corrected that. I think it probably stems from just playing in a shotgun offense at Alabama. I remember asking him about that. He dismissed it. He's not going to make excuses. But look, you're in a system for four years. It's just what you're accustomed to. Change takes time. The second part that you mentioned, I think, is the deep ball. And this is something I've said more about Nelson Aguilar. But when you look at Nelson Aguilar, by far and away, I think we can agree his best his best deep threat. He was more inaccurate throwing to Nelson Aguilar more than 20 yards downfield than any other receiver on his team. And I think that just comes down to bad luck. But if you can't throw to your deep threat for reasons that were just this close than we saw in the wild card game, you know, this close can sometimes flip the other way. And those are touchdowns, two or three more 50 to 60 yard gains. Nelson Aguilar goes from 473 yards to 700. And that looks like a big change for Mac when in reality it was just, you know, they had a little bit more chemistry. And those are the small battlegrounds where he kind of wins the war against the whole league. And why do you got to have that element? A lot of people aren't uh, real big on yeah, the deep, you know, take the top off the defense, that guy speed down the field, you know, it's, is that, is that overrated? Yeah, maybe to some degree, but this is why it's needed in this, in this offense, because this is truly an offense that wants to kill you by, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, slowly, methodically chew up clock, control the game with, you know, pre, you know precision pinpoint, you know, accurate throws and just kind of methodically move down the field. However, to do that successfully, you need to always have kind of this threat in the defense's mind that you can go over the top when you need to. If you can take shots down the field, you have somebody that, you know, like an Aguilar, maybe a Devontae Parker, who gives teams pause when it comes to, hey, we're going to crowd the box. Because this team wants to run, and this team wants to dink and dunk down the field. This is what this philosophical, it's kind of, you know, the core philosophy for this offense for years. But the only way that you can work the middle and have a successful running game is if you have the element of a deep passing game so that it loosens up that uh, defense 
and they got to be mindful of that. And so you can get work uh, done underneath. And so that's why it's a big key element to any offense, but particularly this offense. Definitely. Oh, we're up the seams, right? You know, when Gronk was here, that's where they threatened 20 yards down the field. It wasn't necessarily outside the number. So you had Brandon Cooks and Chris Hogan would go deep. But those play action deep passes were these kind of crosses or posts or whatever it might be. It was Gronk over the middle because either way, working from the perimeter or in the seams, you're kind of alleviating pressure on the box to either run the ball or work the middle with the quick short passing. Game. All right. Six quick hitters from me. Then we have two mailbag questions for you. As I told you, this is a mix of personal stuff. You're playing days um, and kind of getting into media. So you mentioned you got drafted in 1995, second round out of Colorado to the Patriots. Lawrence Taylor famously pounded 41 Coors Lights on his draft day. Do you, <laughs> do, you do you have any flashbulb memory of that day? What was it like? Of course. Are you kidding me? Um, yeah, I didn't have 41, but I had, let's see, I had two Miller Lights um, from, the, from the time that the guy that was drafted right before me uh, was selected to the time that I was selected. I slammed two <laughs> Miller Lights in that 10-minute, 15-minute span, um, and I'll tell you why in one second. But draft day was incredible. Um, look, I thought I was kind of predicted, Andrew, to go between the middle of the second to the middle of the third. And I went 57th overall, 25th. And so I went exactly kind of where I was predicted. However, there was an outside chance that perhaps maybe I could go later in the first round. And there was a team at the end of the first round in 1995 that was interested in me. And there was only one head coach at the combine, one head coach that I talked to at the combine. And it was a coach that came, grabbed me. He was, we were in the lobby of the hotel. I didn't have a meeting scheduled with this team or this coach, but he, he grabbed me. Johnson, can I give you for, get you for a couple of seconds? And this head coach grabbed me in the lobby and he took me into the stairwell over in the, where no one was around. He shut the door, made sure nobody was in there. And he starts grilling me on cover two. And I'm like, oh man, it's just, I wasn't expecting this interview and I'm kind of caught off guard, but I, I gave this coach all the kind of cover two knowledge I could. And, and I hopefully, uh, I, I thought maybe I, I did pretty good. Well, that coach was Bill Parcell. I mean, excuse me, Bill Belichick, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Bill Belichick took me into the stairwell and grilled me. And I'll never forget that. And they were drafting at the end of the first round. I thought maybe I would go there. They took another guy named Craig Powell, an outside linebacker. But it didn't work. He played three games his whole career. Three games. Point is, when, uh, <clears throat> I went I went to the 57th pick. The 56th pick, the 56th pick in the 1995 draft was a punter named Todd <laughs> Sauerbrunn. So, and so I slammed two uh, Coors Lights uh, after Todd Sauerbrunn was uh, selected at 56. And then I was the 57th pick. Bill Parcells called me, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, my God. I have so many questions. First of all, phenomenal story. Um, second of all, when Bill Belichick gets to New England, because that was just a, a couple years later. He was 96. So. 96, yeah, a year later. Um, did you ask him about Pal? I didn't. I, I should have, right? I, yeah. Um, because, yeah, I, I should have. And, in fact, if I run into Bill, I might bring, I bring that up. But I – I should have uh, questioned him about that selection, Craig Powell out of Ohio State, why he didn't go with me. But the, 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 the point is, is, is that at the end of the day, people want to say, you know, Bill and I have these differences, and we do. We don't see maybe things eye to eye, but I know that he valued what I brought in, uh, in you know, the, uh, the skill set I brought, even when he was the head coach at Cleveland back, back in uh, 1995. Definitely. Look, you don't have a good a career as you did in New England when Bill was defensive coordinator or later the head coach. And obviously the Pete Carroll years in between uh, if you don't have some value, because as soon as you don't, you're you're out the door. Um, wait, how many Miller lights after you got drafted? 
Oh, then I had probably uh, five, you know, five or six more. So I, yeah, <laughs> then, then I then I lost count after I was. Yeah, drafted. excellent. All right, that's the way to do draft day. Not forty-one, which is good because to be right. clear, pass interference is not condoned forty-one cords lights on any day, let alone uh, draft day. All right, so Super Bowls aside, um, what was your favorite win as a player? The most gratifying win in New England. Ooh, that's a great question. Great question. Oh, there's so many, Andrew. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's there's one that's just kind of jumping out at me um, right now, and it was a lot of people aren't gonna maybe remember this, but it was it was I kind of call it the the best halftime speech ever given to me by a head coach game, um, and it was a non-speech, and it was and what happened was it was in 1996. Um, and we, it was the last game of the regular season, 1996, we were playing the New York giants. Okay. And we had just won the division the week before. So we were going into the Meadowlands to play the giants in the last regular season game, 1996 season, the year we went to the Super Bowl, And we, uh, <clears throat> we just won the, the division the, the week before, but we had not cinched up a first round bye. So there was still a lot to play for in that last regular season game, even though we had already clinched the playoff. We go in to, uh, to play the giants who were not a very good team back in 1996. And we were down 17, 19 points at halftime. And we hadn't scored a point. And, you know, we, we were just getting – we were getting crushed. So we go in to make our halftime adjustments. And Rax coached in the defense. We got the offense over there. And then we all come to the middle for the head coach to, uh, to say his final words before we take the field in the second half. Bill Parcells walks up to the group, Andrew, and he looks at all of us. And he just kind of looks around. And he shakes his head in disgust, turns and walks out. Doesn't say a word to us. We don't give up a point in the second half. We win on the last play of the game, essentially. Troy Brown, Ben Coates making huge catches on fourth down with no time left. Ben Coates gets pushed into the – and we win the game with no time left. And we win that game and we get a first round bye and we go on to win the Super Bowl. That was one of the most – I've never been in a locker room in a regular season game that at the end of the day didn't have – that much on the line, but the way we came back in the second half and won that game was one of the most satisfying wins I've ever been a part of in a regular season in a non-playoff game. That's tremendous. That the, the stakes of that game too, right? Like he, whatever Bill Parcells chooses to do at halftime of that game might get you to the playoffs or, you know, or, or that first round by, or exactly. have you play in the next weekend? If we don't chose, get that first round by, who knows yeah. if we, we get the chance to play in the Super Bowl. So you're, you're exactly right. Right. Yeah. And if he turns around and it doesn't work, then you're playing next weekend and you might get bounced. So that's, right. that's awesome. Yeah. And you know what? Wins like that, I think people who aren't obviously in the locker room, you know, you could list off AC championship games or maybe the game you have the most tackles. Like, no, we, we don't know anything about what you just described. So bringing that. Uh, it's perfect. And okay. I will, an honorable mention, the uh, Colts game in uh, 2003 when Peyton Manning, uh, he checked he checked to a run right, 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 right over me. And Willie McGinnis hits the running back, but it was it was a front side play. And that, you know, and then, you know, Vrabel takes off his helmet and starts running down the middle of the field. That's an honorable mention. And that was one of the best games to be a part the, of, too. The regular season game, right? The goal line stop? The regular stop? season game against the Colts. Okay, we, gotcha. We, they, they tried to run it in on the with the no time left, and we snuffed it out. And, uh, and then uh, that, was, that was a hugely satisfying win in the regular season. Yeah, because I was going to say, I don't know, I don't know if you know this, Ted, but you beat the Colts a lot in the Peyton Manning years. And <laughs> I, I got the record for you, and I've told Peyton this before. I thought I was undefeated against Peyton. I only lost on the teams I was a part of Peyton Manning one time, Andrew, one wow. time. And it What's was that overall record? It was in 1998, his rookie year. Oh. He lost to the Colts. 
I'm seven and one against Peyton on the teams I played against seven and one. And so that was, you know, and then, you know, then it started going the other way after I retired in 2005. But yeah, I have a very, I'm very proud to say I have a good record against uh, Peyton May. Yeah. Well, now we know why, you know, they should have just had you out there standing in the corner, you know, Peyton's kryptonite. That's fine. But I'll say losing to Peyton in 1998, when he sets the NFL record, for most interceptions ever thrown in a season. That might be, you might be seven and one and a half. I'll say. I'll say. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I, All right. I, number three, um, toughest tackle in your career. The player that just look, you're not going to admit this big, strong Ted Johnson, but I don't want any part of Jerome Bettis or player X going into Sunday. All right. You ready? I got two names for you. Toughest guys to tackle. Okay. Number one or number two, I will say Mike Allstein. Mike Allstein. Okay, so he played fullback and running back. A lot of people don't. He was a very unique player, Mike Allstein. And let me tell you something. So he played. Uh, he played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? And so he had this forward lean that was. And it's the guys that run with the forward lean. The guys that stand up straight. Eddie George, tough player, but when you get all that target to hit, it's a lot easier. And uh, Mike Allstein, one of the toughest guys to bring down. Unbelievable leg churn, um, but a shot. Uh, a little a soft, softy, softy when it comes to blocking. He don't want to block anybody, but he'll try and run over you. So Mike Allstott, and then number one, the toughest guy to ever uh, tackle. And this is partly because he had such a dominant offensive line, but still, I don't want to take anything away from Terrell Davis. Terrell Davis, mm-hmm. back in the day, he ran with a forward lean. The running backs, Andrew, they, when you hit them and they can fall for a yard or two, those are the toughest guys. So there's a big difference between hitting a guy for a two-yard gain and then having him fall two more yards Second and six is a lot different than second and eight. And Terrell Davis had us in a lot of second and sixes uh, in my career. That's uh, that's unfortunate. But uh, yeah, so Terrell Davis and Mike Allstott, the two toughest guys. Yeah, Mike Allstott makes a lot of sense. And that forward lean, you know, again, that's something you might not think about sitting here in the press box or in the sidelines at home. But again, that just area to hit him and just the density and the compact you know, nature of your power has to get in that spot or it's not going to matter. You're bouncing off. Makes yep. a lot of sense. Who had the most forward lean of any of any guy you faced, maybe in practice or? Oh, it was definitely it was definitely Terrell Davis. Okay. Terrell, he would he would run. So you you didn't see the numbers, right? As he's running, he so Terrell Davis to me was was uh, he ran with the forward lean, and and again, Mike Allstott, and partly the two toughest guys because once you hit them, they would drag you for another yard or two, and that's 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 that adds up. That accumulates over the course of a game. And so that's uh, that's what made them so good. Awesome. All right. Flip side, player you relished hitting the most in your career. Okay. Well, I have a, I have a fun little thing uh, for you here. One of my favorite players to ever play against was Jerome Bettis. So the bus was – he was a tear. He, I mean, he, he – I don't – Andrew, I don't think I, – I didn't – I haven't totally fact-checked it, but I'm almost positive because I think I would know this. All the times we played Pittsburgh, I don't think they ever had 100 yards rushing. Uh, uh, the Jerome Bettis has never had 100 yards rushing against the teams I played on. I love playing Jerome because of his competitive nature. He was a fun guy to play against. He always when we when we would play against the Steelers, it was highly competitive. But it was there was like a respect between the two organizations, and there certainly was between me and Jerome. But I love playing Jerome Bettis just because of how fired up he got, how fired up our defenses got. So that was my favorite guy to play against. Cool. All right, number five, we got two more. Um, you obviously played your entire career in New England. You stayed in New England. You're doing radio. You're doing TV. When was the last time Ted Johnson got pulled over for speeding? And did he get out of the ticket because he's Ted Johnson? Yes. Okay, so I, it's so funny. I used to drive really fast, all right? I'm not afraid to admit. 
Um, I, I, I uh, particularly where I would get busted is on the pike. So the pike is uh, back in the day, and there's a difference between town cops and stadies, right? And I love all the stadies, all you guys out there, be safe. But I would get more tickets with the stadies than I would with the town cops. I, however, I would say this, Sandro. I got off on a lot of speeding tickets. So there's a lot of Patriots fans that are out there that are uh, civil servants, and uh, we appreciate their fandom. But uh, the stadies, I would say, not as many uh, Patriot fans and the, the, the state troopers, but uh, I've gotten off on a lot of tickets. It's been a while since I got pulled over for speeding, but back in the day, being a Patriot sure uh, sure helped me out with some of those speeding tickets. So what percentage? How many question. times have you been pulled over and you got off versus I would you got probably paid? say I've gotten off 60 to 70% of the time. Wow. Oh, you know what? Here's, I got him. I got a real, you know what? I got one for you. Yeah. Uh, last year, I was going to get my, pick up my daughter to go work out uh, at her, at her facility in Norwood early in the morning. So I would go pick her up at five in the morning. This was last year and I had three days a week. And you know what I did? I'm at the stoplight. I get off the pike and I'm uh, going into uh, Wellesley and there's a red light and it's literally well, no car to the right, no car to the left. And so I'm like, I'm just going to run this red light. It's, you know, five o'clock in the morning and there's nobody out on the road. I start to run the red light because I'm a little late getting to my daughter. And here comes a cop pulled around the corner. Boop, lights go on, pull me over, comes up, gets my driver's license, goes in the back, comes back. Teddy, my man, you're good. Go ahead, buddy. And, uh, and that was great. So I appreciate, I appreciate getting off on so many speeding tickets. And I ran, I blatantly ran a red light and was able to get off last year. So there you go. My man. I, we got to ride more together. I haven't been pulled over in a while, but like, I, I just, you know, it's coming. You zone out on the pike, 95, 93, going to and from oh, yeah. Foxborough, Route 1. We're coming home after a night game. It's three or four in the morning. Why am, why am I obeying that sign or maybe that red light in your case? Okay. Um, okay. One last question on that. If you took all of the speeding tickets you've, you've gotten, and let's say you didn't get, you got off on 0% and had to pay all of them. Was that as much money, more or less than you would have been fined by Bill? <laughs> when he took over for whatever, being later or any of the small things that happened? By far the speeding tickets. Okay, By far. good, good. It is not, it is, and it's not even close. Um, you, and I'll give you one quick story about the fines with Bill. So, so there, was a, uh, there was either you get fined for being late and you get fined for missing the meeting, okay? And so there was, I've, I've been late for a team meeting once in my whole life, a uh, morning meeting. So I got to the facility and I knew I was there and I got to a point which if I walk, if I go in, I'm going to be, I'm going to be late. So you get fined. For, it's $1,500 for being late, 5,000 for missing a meeting. Okay. Which do you think I took? The 1,500 or the 5,000? I hope you took the 1,500. I took the 5,000, Andrew, because there was no way I was going to walk into a team meeting late in the morning and everybody see me come in late. I said, I'll take the $5,000 hit. So that I don't have to save the embarrassment of walking in late, and so I'd rather pay the five thousand fine and avoid the embarrassment of walking in late uh, than I did uh, of just uh, not showing up for the meeting at all. So I missed that morning meeting. I don't know when it was, but it was many, many years ago, and I took the five thousand dollar hit. So people, so people always wonder what a tongue lashing would be like from Bill Belichick inside those meetings. And your answer is at least $3,500. The difference split between if you had just walked through that door versus you choosing to say, fuck it. Like, I'm, I'm staying I'm out of here. And let me just say, he wouldn't, he wouldn't rip you in the team meeting. There would be a long, dramatic pause. And that's all you need is that I just want to feel that long, dramatic pause. Like, 
I don't, you know what it is, Andrew? You don't want to be the guy that's used as a scapegoat for losing that week because you weren't focused and coming into meetings late. And so I would have rather just avoided that whole thing and pay more money in fines and not have to deal with being the scapegoat for why we weren't focused in, in uh, winning that game that week. Okay. All right. Now I'm starting to come around, but man, I, I sure would love to have done the same college. thing I did. Trust me. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Last one for my quick hitters. You transitioned, like I mentioned to TV and radio. Um, what surprised you about being in the media that you couldn't own as a player, but what's something you also got right thinking as a player about our kind of existence on this side? Okay. The first thing I would say, the thing that I got right was the importance of establishing relationships with people in the media while you're playing. So that, so I, I thought it was very important. I think I had really good relationships. with A lot of people, when I played, I tried to connect with the people that covered team. I tried to look at their job through their lenses when I played. And I think some of that goodwill probably benefited me later, uh, later on. Um, and so to me, relationships, forming relationships, connecting with people in the media, why I played was important to me because back then there wasn't social media. Like, so if you got a chance to, Hey, EI wants to talk to you after the game. I jumped at the opportunity because right. it was a way in which I could connect with the fans and the fans could get to know me nowadays. Players don't care about, yeah, I don't, they don't care about being on radio. They don't care about being given a good quote in the newspaper. They have their own social platforms that they can project uh, to people how they want to be perceived. And, and so it was a whole different deal back then. So to me, that was one of the things I think I, I got right. Um, oh, the, the segue, uh, getting, uh, getting wrong, I would say, you know, things I didn't expect when I first got in the media was how powerful your words are. And, and I knew that they were. But as far as I would say, you know, being just the, the, the struggle for a former player going into the media is always how critical to be with your old team and players you knew and played with. Um, it's a very tough thing. I wasn't expecting the, the kind of inner turmoil that I was going to feel going from I, – because I went right into CBS. I worked the pre- and post-game show for CBS right when I retired – it was very difficult to be critical of guys that I knew and respected and I was friends with immediately after. You almost need, like they always say, a little bit more distance from the time you retire to the time you go into be an analyst job because you're going to have to be critical. I think the best guys are the ones that can be, for the most part, unbiased and objective, at least talk about their team and like I had to. And so that was a, that was a challenge for me. Gotcha. I love it. Pure, honest answer. And I think that's right. You know, I know – Bill has said to other expatriates who've gone on, Rodney Harrison, for example, and just said, look, and he said this to Julian Edelman, who I think shared this later, if you have to rip us, do it. You know, like that's the job. So I think the the gap helps like you're talking about because it's not like it's people you've literally been in the trenches with that then you're going to rip from your cozy studio or wherever you might be. We're sitting at home and it just feels different. But I think, you know, if they have the understanding that you do, which not all players do, and I, I respect that. Look, they've got a limited amount of time. You don't need to think about what my job is like. But if you do, you understand, I'm speaking to a larger audience. The thing that matters most to me is the truth. And even if that hurts your feelings in the interim, hopefully long-term you can understand yeah. I delivered and did my job. Can I, can I elaborate just real quick? I know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But I would say about this particular thing is, so people want former players to get insight to, hey, talk to this guy, talk to that guy. And so they, that was a big kind of you can just feel this kind of pressure or this expectation like well you're the former player you're going to be able to get all these scoops 
what I just, what I told my bosses from the very beginning, that's that, sorry, if you want that guy, I'm not that guy. There's guys that currently are in the media here that they play both sides. You cannot play both sides. And I am a media member now. I'm not a former football player anymore. And so it's more important for me to be identified as a media member. This is my second career. And so it's important for me to have, be unbiased and be objective. And so right now, it's not like I'm friends with all these Patriots. I do a job, my job, I'm better at it because I don't know these guys. And if I had, you know, positive feelings or I was friends with these guys, I couldn't be honest. I want to be honest and I'm going to be taken seriously as a media member. And so you're not going to hear me break a lot of stories because I talk to this guy or talk to that guy, because if all these guys I talk to off the record to give me scoops, I can't be critical and objective about these players on game day if I had these relationships. So to me, I don't want to be friends with all the Patriots uh, guys on the team right now, you know, because I don't think I'm as good as my job when I do that. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult balance. And that speaks to a lot of things in journalism that, you know, again, not even coming up on the player side, which obviously gets a little bit more difficult, but you understand the distance and the respect that's needed to do that. Cause some guys, you know, I've talked to either in this locker room or other places or around the league, you go, look, here's my deal. I'm going to shoot you straight. I'm going to shoot everyone else straight as best I can. I'm not going to get it right all the time, but I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be researched. So if we can talk ball and you know, like you're talking scoops or news, whatever it is, if you can respect that, that's great. If you don't want to totally understood, but, but here's, here's what I got just being upfront. Um, all right, two mailbag questions. We'll get you out of here. Jake Hamilton from Twitter. He wants to know, and this is a little bit broad. Are we being overcritical of Belichick? There's a notion he's lost his quote fastball, but many of the coaches in the AFC have yet to show they even have a fastball. So I think that's a different discussion now in the offseason, right? You're talking about Belichick, the GM. I think he might be meaning more as a coach, referencing the other coaches in the AFC. Um, so what say you from what you've seen from Bill on Sundays the last couple of years? Yeah, no, I think he's, he's, um, he's, all the criticism has been warranted. Are you kidding me? Now, Bill runs a tight ship. He has, he has a lot of high expectations. He demands a lot. He's paid a lot of money. All right. And so he is not above reproach. He is not above criticism. So it, it particularly post Tom Brady. So let's, you got, you got Tom Brady years and you have post Tom Brady. Post Tom Brady, you have seen some very, I think, alarming, disappointing trends that have started to, and let's face it, one of the trends started when Tom was here, and that is the last few years, this team gets worse as the season goes on, right? You're starting to see more critical uh, errors in judgment when it comes to the coaching. You're seeing players not being developed at a rate in which they used to develop uh, uh, here. You're seeing special teams issues that you're not used to seeing when uh, you know Tom was here. There's a lot of things that are being exposed post Tom. And so, and he's making as much money as he's making and the demands and in which he expects and expectations he's had as you as a player. So I'm a former player and I know what he expected for me. And I knew if I wasn't producing at the rate, he would ask, he would tell me to take a pay cut or he would he, he get rid of me. And so when I'm analyzing this team, just from my standpoint, I don't think I'm being too hard on Bill. And I don't think a lot of the people are because of how he would expect you to do the same thing, you know, how he, the expectations he had. So to me, at the end of the day, Bill probably, he, he gets, he deserves all the criticisms he gets because he is lauded rightfully so, so much as well. So it's, it, it goes, it goes both ways. Um, and so I don't think we're being too hard on him because he, at the end of the day, chose not to have Brady as his quarterback. And so I'm not going to judge him. Um, I'm going to judge him just as harshly now that Tom is gone as I would if Tom was here. 
Yeah. And you know, it depends on the criticism, right? You know, if you're talking about the on-field product versus the roster building and they're all intertwined and affect one another, you know, there are different levels of degrees to which he deserves that criticism. But I think you're right. Look, there's, there's a bill you trust if you're a fan and that's great, but this is a team that went 10 and seven before that seven and nine in 2018 and 2019 and 2017, the second half of the seasons, they all got worse and sure they reached the Super Bowl in 17 and 18. But as you mentioned, Brady was there. And I think it speaks to kind of the larger, you know, people called it brain drain around the organization. Josh McDaniels leaves because Nick Casario has gone. Dave Ziegler leaves, you know, defensive coordinator, Brian Flores, it's, you know, defensive play callers out. Like there's only so much one man can do. So his decisions and how to replace those people and almost exclusively with people coming up in his system, that's where I think you start to go, you know, the criticism is warranted. And that might explain some of you're talking about the lack of development with the new coaches or how we roster build. And are we going to charge to change our evaluation process, which they did last year. And then you see the new results in the draft. So a lot of people are going to say, Hey, you know what? Hey, cut the guy some slack. He's won six Super Bowls. <laughs> Here's the thing. What does Bill say every single year at the beginning of every single season? He says last year doesn't mean anything. This is a whole new year. And so I'm going to judge Bill on what I'm seeing right now and in the present. And, and I'm not going to look at the past. Yeah, he's had a ton of success, clearly. You know, I mean, no coach has had more success. But that doesn't mean anything this year. And so I'm going to judge him and on how it's been looking this year. And um, what you're seeing in, the recent, in recent years is not being good. And so he deserves all the criticism until he can turn it around and show he's as good of a coach without Tom Brady's as he was with. Yeah. And the other thing he says, we'll see. You know, like we'll see how this season goes. Cause I think, you know, you wash your books and revamp your roster going 2020 to 2021. Okay. You made it to the playoffs. You got a new quarterback. We'll see how he does in year two in the rest of your roster for the good AFC. All right. Last question. Um, this is well-timed because I just dropped the story uh, this morning. We're recording on a Monday about Matt Grove speaking about replacing a new GM third and three years or director of player personnel. Um, what do you know about him? He was a kid who used to visit when Al Groh was on the staff in your first years under Bill Parcells. And uh, so, you know, he says, will he stand up to Bill? I'll tell you that Belichick reveres uh, his perspective and, and appreciates it greatly because of how smart Macro is, how clearly he explains himself, and he has no problem telling him good or bad news. Okay. And then I'll take it another step forward. Yeah. And I will say this. I think he, I think Matt Grow, I have no problem with Matt Grow. Everybody wants to talk about how he got his job. I get it. I understand. But I'm going to judge Matt on his father. And I know Al Grow very, very well. I know Matt. I've met, I haven't seen Matt or talked to Matt in a long time. But I know his father. And so I'm going to think a lot of Matt is going to be, the principles that are in Matt Grow is going to be the same principles that were in his father, Al Grow. Al Grow, Andrew, was my favorite coach position coach ever. I love Al Groh. Al Groh is a football coach. He's fair. He's hard, but he's, I think he's, I think he's, he's a fair coach. He's a phenomenal coach because not only is he going to make me better, but he's also, there's an emotional and human element to his coaching. That was the perfect blend. So he cared about his players, but he was tough on us and he demanded a lot. He was so smart and he got the best out of me. I think those traits are going to be in his son, Matt. And so I have a lot. So Bill is going to listen to Matt more than you think because he has so much respect for his dad. And so I like to think some of that's going to be transferred to his son, Matt. And so um, I know he's very analytical. I know when you hear him talk, it's like, sounds like, you know, a kind balloon maybe talking like he's this analytical robot, but that's where the game is going. And so 
I have zero problem with Matt Groh and where he's at. And it sounds like if Matt Groh was involved at all in last year's draft class, like Bill Belichick is kind of, uh, you know, made uh, he credited him for assembling the whole the whole draft board. Then, yeah. then Matt Groh's the right guy because last year's draft <laughs> class was phenomenal, and so I have zero problem with Matt Groh. Yeah, and I would say just just read the story. It sounds like a cheap plug, but that was over three thousand words. I sat with Al Groh at a Dunkin' Donuts for almost three hours to get some background on him, and I came away impressed. And I think you know, for those of you who don't know, guy who came up under Bill Parcells late seventies, starting at Air Force, followed him to the Giants, worked with Bill in Cleveland worked with the other Bill in New England. Uh, the Jets took over there for a year and then pretty much finished his career in Virginia and Georgia Tech. So a guy who's been around, knows their system, knows the way they think. This isn't to say his son deserves a shot because of that. Matt Groh got in the door probably because of his last name. But over the last 11 years, you know, like you know, if anyone got put on the field, your last name doesn't score any points. And so that was the point that a lot of people raised to me, from Dante's Garnecchia to other GMs around the league. That kid put in the time and the effort and it helps that, you know, he went to Princeton and Virginia Law School. So he's got a good head on his shoulders. Right. Um, all right, Ted, this has been tremendous. Look, I had five people on the first episode. This has been my first, uh, <laughs> my favorite episode since then. We only have three. Would love to have you back. Um, look forward to the draft. And uh, yeah, we'll, we're, we're, we're going to have you back sooner rather than later. Andrew, I'm a big fan of your work and just you as a person. So I hope we do more of this. And I look forward to getting to know you better. But you need me anytime you let me know. But I always enjoy talking to you. And I appreciate you coming on the Sunday football show with me earlier in the season. It's been a fun season. I have one more, one more show this Sunday. It'll be the last uh, kind of episode of the Sunday football show for 2022, where we wrap up all the things that happened in the draft. So big week for both of us. I'm excited. It's going to be a good time starting on Thursday night. I'm glad you plugged because I forgot to ask anything else you want to throw out there. Um, but uh, I look, I need you when I have my next long drive. So I will, I'll give you a call. You can just sit passenger. We'll swap when I get pulled over and we'll get out of there just okay. As long as we're in Massachusetts, we're fine. <laughs> it sounds good, Ted. All right, buddy.